Hello, this is Oliver. I'm Eleanor. From the present group. We spoke with Nava Lubelski, our 15th artist. Nava's proposal was chosen by our subscribers as the Subscriber's Choice Edition. In this issue's interview, we talk about Nava's practice and what it's like living in North Carolina. Asheville. And we even talk about work of art. We started off by asking Nava to explain her piece for the present group. So that project is a machine-stitched version of the kind of thing that I do normally. And my work often is taking um, sometimes found linens and other times canvases with stains or that I splash things on and stain and cut and ruin and then responding to those marks with stitching to kind of repair them in a sense but also to bring into those shapes and holes a kind of beauty, seduction, humor, whatever it is. And so that piece specifically was an experiment in doing that by machine and I took a a piece I had created a couple of years ago through the process I just described and traced it basically on the computer, made a drawing out of it of um, flat shapes and lines and gave it to the factory, which then used their, although they have technicians to do this and do it perfectly, what we decided to do is just feed it into the software that they use to have it automatically create a stitch file that then um, was stitched on their machines. So it's kind of reversing that process in a, in a way, in my mind, and kind of, um, on the one sense, sort of even more controlling uh, the, organi- the organic origins, but also leaving open to the machine's interpretation, the software's interpretation, and the different things that happen when something without a mind or an ability to make changes just goes to work on it so you didn't tweak it at all no (laughs) and that was really interesting for me i mean there was two reasons i didn't tweak it at all and one well i tweaked the drawing you mean the tweak the finished Mm -hmm. fish thing yeah um i didn't know anything about how the the software would respond to the drawing but um and when i saw the initial sample I definitely had all kind of reactions like, oh, I wish I'd like to change that color thread and that little area looks weird and, you know, that wasn't what I imagined. But I realized that I could endlessly make changes to make it, bring it up to my idea of perfect, which is something so random and arbitrary anyway. And there's also the economic part that I realized that if I was constantly intervening and saying, wait, stop, let's do something else, that that would just add on money. Mm-hmm. and But I think that that was a really good boundary to have, that the cheapest way to do it was to let it be the way it happened naturally. And I, to me, that's sort of a funny idea that the machine has a nature and a natural way that, it, that things happen. But I made the choice not to intervene and to let that be what it was gonna be. And, and, and to, to look at, you know, since I am a real fan of imperfection and errors in my own work and, and my goal is never to hide them, but to kind of explore them and highlight them. I felt like seeing things that I consider errors, but of course on a machine are really systematic and repeated throughout the entire run was an interesting thing to allow and um, just let it be. So yeah, I changed the background color because they had just chosen that. And you know, that was like a human choice. 
But um, yeah, otherwise, I didn't make any changes. It, it seems like this whole process has been a very like minute by minute process of abstraction. You know, uh -huh. you start you start with the spill itself, then you hand stitch around it, and then you make a digital representation of that stitching, and then finally the machine stitches it itself, and yeah. and your physical touch is no longer present. Do you think that this is a direction that you'd consider pursuing? Oh yeah, I find it really interesting, and I mean both because I realize like I, I've often even said like what I was saying before about not being like high, being really fond of error. I kind of have referred to myself at times as an imperfectionist, meaning like I work really, really hard and really carefully to allow things to not be perfect. And um, I think this is really interesting. And for me, the the letting go of control was really fascinating. And I realized that, you know, I may call myself an imperfectionist, but it's really just another form of perfectionist is that my idea of perfect is, is maybe not, you know, what's what's more what's common. And I knew even going over, the woman called me to see the sample from the factory and she said, oh, it looks really great. And I was driving up there and I said to myself, you know, you're not going to like it. So just be prepared that there's gonna be all these things that, you know, even it's great that she thinks it's great. That's a really good sign that an, another human would think it looks great. But I knew I wouldn't like it because I knew, you know, I would, all this stuff would come up like oh, that, you know, that could be different and that could be different. And just because I'm compulsive that way. But it's so interesting to me to to feel that and see what what comes of trying to kind of subvert that. And I also think, although I've really focused on handmade work, and I think the handmade is a really interesting um, topic and really and, and amazing work comes from using human hands, I also am interested in you know, experimenting with work that I don't really make myself, um, or I make in certain ways, make choices, and then and let the process unfold differently. And so, yeah, I, I definitely got inspired by doing this, and feel like I want to, you know, have. And also now I know some new things about how that process works, and I can anticipate some things, although not all, about how um, the software and the machines would respond to choices I make. So, it, yeah, it's opened up a whole new area that's really interesting to me. One of the things that we liked about this piece in particular is the way the the machine makes choices. In in a couple of places, it's the same color. It's just the stitching pattern has changed to create mm -hmm. a, a different effect. Or it's it seems like in other places there'll be a color stitched underneath the predominant color. Yes. Did was that something that you had? Was that in that, your file or how did that? Yeah, work? most of that was because. I was, so I, re, I actually redid the drawing at some point because I realized I had you know I created an illustrator and I had made shapes and just put them over shapes mm -hmm. um, and I didn't know that the I, I guess I could have anticipated this but I didn't that the software because it has this um, you know kind of symbiosis with illustrator or whatever they're connected it doesn't just read what it sees like a flat image it mm -hmm. reads those whole shapes and so i actually redid it and cut out the areas that were behind because i thought oh i'll just it'll save on stitches and it's kind of waste and i'll give them a version that really just you know the well, there's no overlap and um but they had already moved ahead with it um and i think just again for the economics since paul was kind of you know cutting a deal on the job he was just kind of like no more conversation you know let me just keep moving with what we 
have already. Um, and so, yeah, that was one of the really interesting things that I didn't know that. And as a result, there's this layering that happens that's totally random because I kind of had this idea of like, if you don't see it, it's not there. And there's some really wonky shapes that are, were just sort of convenient for me to draw right. behind other shapes because I didn't think you'd see that. I think that's a really happy accident because it really adds something to the piece, I think, because it's just, you know, it's almost like a shading. It's just these tiny bits of thread you see behind another color mm. coming through. Anyway. Yeah, and there are some things that disappeared for that reason where there were mm. certain marks that were supposed to, that were actually in the front, but then because of the order of stitching, the machine went over with a, another color and hid things that were actually in the front on the drawing, but not, not just in one or two cases. But yeah, and, it's, and it also seeing that the different way that the machine stitches something that was formatted as a line versus something that was formatted as a shape is really amazing. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so those are all things that are really amazing to know. And then when you know that stuff, really, you know, you make all different choices, of course. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your process in general, um, about stains in particular. Do you prefer finding stains or do you prefer to make stains? That's a really interesting question um, because in, I, in general I've gotten the impression that other people prefer me to find stains <laughs> and in, t in certain situations where I've admitted to creating stains myself, I've gotten even one time a review of a show of mine the critics said, oh, it's really disappointing that um, she's made these stains herself and then they're not just um, found mm -hmm. objects because it lessens a sense of redemption, which to me, that's her bag. I mean, I'm not saying there's not, you know, a sense of redemption in them, but that's not really the whole idea to me. So both have happened and times when I found great stains on great um backgrounds it's really exciting and I did a piece that I'm that's one of my favorites that is a wine stain on a tablecloth that is so dramatic and amazing and it happened right in front of my eyes and you know I didn't plan it I, I was there and I found it but I don't depend on finding them because that's just an idea for me and the making of the pieces is is kind of a step removed from that in a in some ways and also the process of, to me, the staining is basically just a metaphor for destruction in general. And I don't, it doesn't matter to me if I create that destruction myself. That's an impulse I have. I think we all have to break things down and break things apart and ruin things that look perfect. And that's amazing to me as well and interesting to me to respond to that as well. So I'll create stains and kind of, a, I, I kind of work myself into a little chaotic frenzy and sort of stab at the canvases and splash things around and create basically problems for myself because then I'll always look at what I've done and think oh my god this time I've gone too far and I don't know what to do with this <laughs> and that's just as interesting to me as finding a stain that may be a, a quite tame little stain on something you know sure. um, so I like both and they I think they both have different meanings but they come together in in interesting ways too so is that the reason why you've chosen stains as one of your main themes? Is that you you like the the chaos and then the mending of that, the you know the the reasserting yourself over that? Yeah, Maybe, that's like, part of it. Like, yeah, that's part of it. I think there's several um, there's several things that kind of came together for me with that, and one of them is that this idea that a stain is something 
that immediately signals, you know, it, it's over, you know, it's ruined, it, it needs to be thrown away, sort of useless now. And so I, I like the idea of what can I do to, to repair or bring something back and also to use, I, it's sort of something humorous to me in the idea of repairing, using a, 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 a for a medium that's, that's in a lot of senses about repair, sewing, but to, to repair something that isn't usually repaired through sewing. Um, but it, there's other things that were going on for me when I first started with that idea, and one of them was the attitude towards things that are embroidered or stitched and the way it has this kind of, it's changed a little in the past. I've been doing it for about 10 years or more, but, um, you know, this idea of sewing as something kind of uh, lowbrow and fuddy-duddy-ish, and um, I really thought about what can I sew that will make you look differently at stitching and think about these pieces paintings and so the stain is in that sense not just a stain but i thought oh this is kind of the classic gesture of modern art is it's drip or splash on a canvas and so there that was another level for me that i could create these sort of you know what i think of as kind of macho you know mid 20th century like splashy graphics and then overlay them with this very patient domestic womanly thing yeah the the and you know then i moved into cutting holes and repairing those with kind of lace lattices which to me was kind of the next level of the same idea like you have a hole and that ruins the structure of the canvas and then using lace stitching which is this kind of decorative thing to to be structural was sort of interesting to me in the same way of embroidery as a repair to a stain there's sort of an obsessive quality to your work you know it's very time consuming what appeals to you about that part of um, it yeah you know it's funny it kind of appeals to me and doesn't appeal to me at the same time and some of it is not even pure intention it's it's like my own hang up that I can't be finished with something until I feel like I've, it was sort of the, you know, the compulsion, compulsive thing that I talked about before where I just am not satisfied. But I also feel like when I'm using these kind of images that are um, really splashy and aggressive and look like they were created in an instant because you see little droplets flying out, there's a kind of surprise when you see the incredible detail that's kind of encapsulated in that form, which I think is really fascinating. And I sort of love that in art where your, your expectation as you move closer to something is changed. And I, you know, I like that it's not just a trick, but that you really see the, the labor in it. Mm-hmm. So I, again, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm answering, but um, so it, so in some ways it's an attention in other ways, it's something I can't help. And I don't even necessarily like it. And I often find myself getting incredibly impatient and feel like I always, every time I try a new kind of, a new way of working, I think, oh, this is going to be quicker. And it always, I always discover, like when I started doing these sculptures out of paper and rolling paper, I thought, oh, this will be easier and quicker than embroidery. And I'll get my idea sort of finished with, without all this, you know, sweat and masochism, but it turned out to be even more labor intensive and, you know, more exhausting to do those. So I, I think it's just in some ways in my nature to kind of gnaw at something till, till an extreme point, you know. Mm-hmm. 
How do you stop? When do you feel, when do you know it's done? When do you feel satisfied? Um, yeah, it happens differently every time. Sometimes I just feel like, oh, it's great. You know, I'm like, I'm so happy with it and, and like it so much the way it is because the whole process is pretty improvisational and, um, you know, so it's, it's like doing anything improvisational. You know, you look at it and feel like, oh, let me try this here. And, and I never take, I never erase anything. I only, even if I feel like I made a mistake in a choice, I'll just respond to that mistake. Um, and so that's part of, I think, why the process can take so long. But yeah, sometimes it's just like so awesome. <laughs> I think like, how could I possibly do anything else? And other times it's much more amorphous and I feel like, well, I don't know what to do. Let me leave it for a while. And sometimes I'll come back to things much later. I had one piece that I had finished and I felt pretty good about. I even sent it to a show. It was in a gallery um, for like a couple of years until they sent the unsold work back to me. And when I got it back, I thought, oh, this is so wrong. I don't, I don't. I don't know how I ever gave this to them. And I splashed a bunch of stuff all over it just to kind of like, I don't know, restart with it and had that thing I described earlier where I, where I felt like, Oh my God, what did I do? It like had so many hours of labor in it already. And it was good enough, surely, you know, and I totally, I spilled bleach on it and paint and stuff. But then I just responded to that same problem I had created, like how to avoid throwing this thing in the trash and it became one of my favorite pieces from this totally like second level process of doing the same thing so I mean I don't even know for sure that a lot of them are finished even if they're sold or like hanging in galleries <laughs> you know it's just they're finished for now in a previous interview you mentioned that the art making process itself is masochistic yeah could you explain <laughs> that Sure. I mean, I don't think it is for everybody necessarily, but it is for me and partly it's the compulsion that I've talked about where I really, I, I fantasize about making things quickly and easily. And I've talked to other artists who say, oh, I'm never happier. But when I, you know, know I have a lot more to go on a project and I'm so excited and into it. And I definitely feel that excitement at times, but there's a lot a lot of the time when I'm working on things and maybe it is the nature of what I'm doing that it's time consuming and slow I feel like <laughs> I I can't believe what I have in front of me and what I have to still do and um, and also it's not like using a needle is such a dangerous tool but you'd be surprised how much you're just poking at yourself and stabbing <laughs> your fingers and I can't really use traditional thimbles because it doesn't I don't I feel like I don't have enough dexterity and but it's not even just the sewing thing when I'm rolling paper it, it can feel so tedious and feel like I'm getting carpal tunnel or something but I really want to see what where it's going to be when it's done and so I just keep on with it and I don't know if I even think the masochism in some ways makes me feel like I'm you know it's like some some kind of religious you know purging or something where I think it um, it makes me sure that I'm doing something that matters, and I think sometimes I'll you know I think we all do this like you know, do a quick drawing or or make a quick gesture and you think oh it looks so great, but I don't feel certain uh, often if I haven't really sweated over things. So I guess all I'm saying is that I don't always enjoy working on my pieces, but it's kind of worth it to me. 
your work has been described as subversive. <laughs> Do you consider it subversive? Um, I mean, you know, that's real. It's funny that I. I mean, yes and no. I mean, all art, I think, that tries to challenge itself is subversive, sort of. And it's certainly, I certainly think my uh, my work is subversive to some people. But I also, at the same time, I'm really surprised by that kind of reaction because I think, in the scheme of things, what I'm doing is fairly tame. And um, it just sort of depends on who you ask. I had a friend over to my studio the other day who does fairly conventional paintings, and he was going to this whole thing about how my work has this gruesome quality, and it's like looking at medical textbooks. And I was just laughing. I mean, I don't. To me, I don't even see it, and I know he's not the only one. But there's, you know, other um, certainly communities and or you know artists or people who are interested in art who would look at my work and see it as nothing but pretty or formal. So I, I guess I have to go with yes and no as an answer to that question. I was certainly my intention when I was starting out, you know, to 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 do something surprising or to to add a dimension or a level to something that I didn't see out there. So in that sense, sure. Mm-hmm. But um I mean I, I guess I guess I I would love the idea that my work was subversive because I think that's a great thing to subvert a lot of what is just kind of humming along. But I guess I I don't know if I deserve the compliment. (laughs) (laughs) Could you tell us about your paper sculptures? Sure. Um, So my paper sculptures are in a way more narrative than the embroidered work I do. Because even though they're totally abstract, they are all created from a single, each one is created from a single stash of paper, like hoarded paper. And it's all paper that's been saved for different reasons. So I started with my own saved paper and I did a a series of four or five pieces that were all uh, made from tax records. So each piece is one year's a uh, text file, like the forms and the receipts and all the stuff you have to save. And it kind of started from this feeling of, okay, you're supposed to shred your financial information if you're going to get rid of it. And I had way more than the you know number of years you're supposed to be keeping around. And so there's a combination of feeling like, how can I throw away all this paper that I kept for all these years and had value to me? even if the value was very odd and subtle. And also, um, you know, there's this funny way that the paper you keep for tax records, for example, is is so personal that you have to shred it because it has your social security number and all this other, you know, private information, like how much money you make. And, and yet it's so universal and so incredibly boring to anybody else to see and is much more interesting if you don't know the specific content. And so a lot of ideas kind of came together to me and I shredded up a tax year and then reconfigured it and rolled up the shreds of paper and let it grow into this kind of flat, organic, doily-like, lichen-like, organic thing. And, and I like that there's content. It's almost the way we, you know, with computers, you'll see that you'll have icons or uh, suggestions that there's all this information in files, but the files aren't um, visible to the eye. And so it's like this little library to me of tiny scrolls of information that you can't access, but you can see that it's there. And then 
the putting it together again responded to the feeling of um, not wanting to throw away paper, which of course, you know, it's hard to forget sometimes when you have a mountain of it that it's these dead trees and then this reconfiguration, it looks to me like a slab of a tree and you can sort of read it in this new way where instead of reading the actual content and the words and the numbers, you're reading the quantity and you're, you're reading the colors of the different types of paper. And then I moved on from financial stuff. I did one that was, again, my own rejection letters. Um, and it's all rejection letters from art-related things, grant applications, stuff like that, that I also had saved. And it's, in a funny way, it's tax-related, too, because I had read somewhere, you're supposed to save all your rejection letters because if you get audited, you can show the IRS how hard you've been trying. And um, so I had this folder full of rejection letters from like 10 years, and I cut them up as well into a piece. And I did a piece that just serendip uh, serendipitously, I met this banker, investment banker who had saved all the papers from a relationship that had broken his heart where he'd um, fallen in love with another guy and then been rejected, saved everything, all his email printouts, notes to himself, um, like you'll be happy again someday, you know, notes between them, all this stuff had, sealed, had, had it sealed in a box for five years. And so I made a piece out of that, which again is, you know, it's highly specific because it's all about these particular people, but the actual content isn't that interesting and the and what's interesting is how universal it is and all the feelings of heartbreak and well it's interesting i, I think yeah. in some way the narrative is the same as the spill pieces because it, you take these negative moments taxes rejection letters and then the, like the chaos of stains or spills and then you sort of reclaim them or restore them or you assert control over them in some way and make them a new thing and or, or a beautiful thing do you feel empowered by this process? That's an interesting way to put it, empowering. Um, I possibly, I think it, for me, it comes more from a, like empowering seems like a moving forward from a place of stasis. And I feel almost like it's like digging out of a hole because mm -hmm. I, and I think some of this is a really common feeling like the, you know, we're at a place where there's so much, waste and I think particularly with the paper I feel it that it, it, there's like a tragedy to letting go of this paper and not a tragedy to letting go of it a tra tragedy to kind of like sending it to the landfill and um, so it's a way to feel okay about that to feel like it's not a total waste but it's also interesting you know in those pieces interesting because it's paper that you that you've held onto and had value and then can in an instant because it simply is paper and words has no value. But with the stains, I think it's a similar idea where there's a, a little, uh, there's sort of a minor tragedy to me in something that may have been treasured, a piece of clothing or a tablecloth or whatever it is that then is suddenly, it's suddenly all over and maybe you scrub and scrub and try to get the stain out. But if it won't come out, it's like death to that thing. And, 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 you don't, you know, it, it's gone from your life. And, um, and, you know, it's some of it's to do with waste and some of it is just to do with this idea. Can it really be true that something you, you cared about so much and loved or had value is worthless suddenly? And, and how can you bring it back to a place of, of, you know, being meaningful again? Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's possible that it is empowering, but it um, it feels to me more like it's making something okay again that has become 
unsettled or upsetting somehow. You move seamlessly through the art and design and craft worlds. Do you ever feel conflict between them or ask yourself where the line is between them? Yes. It's funny that you say I move seamlessly. I don't necessarily feel that I move seamlessly, but I like to hear it. I feel like there are some really strange lines and funny places and it can be really hard. And, you know, my background is in art and I grew up in New York and um, in an art community. So I never really thought about design or crafts. And part of my attraction to those things was just about playing with different materials more than it was entering into a different world other than the art world. But I have definitely gotten responses in the kind of gallery world of New York that my work is, um, you know, lightweight or something. And I think it's mostly a response to the materials. And then I certainly have had the experience in more kind of design circles that my work is, you know, too edgy or too, um, conceptual. And neither of these has really been a big problem. It's just kind of navigating around the different perceptions. But I do feel a bit of confusion at times about where I fit. And I just try to fit wherever it works. But um, yeah, I don't know how seamless it is. It's, it's a little strange and not something I planned on. It's just how it turned out because of what I'm doing. And I often feel like my work kind of just rides the edge. Mm-hmm. Um, between and so it's kind of accepted here or there in both worlds and maybe not fully in any <laughs> do you feel like it's shifted over time like as the this craft movement seems to sort of be growing in, in consciousness yeah or? yeah I definitely and I think sort of for good and bad although I would say mostly good um, for one thing this whole space has opened up to appreciate uh, work that's made with traditional craft materials, which is great. Um, at the same time, it makes it easier, I suppose, for s- certain kind of art world schools of thought to dismiss it because it, oh, it goes over there in this kind of alternative craft world. So it's good. So it's good and bad, I think, in that sense. But I, but I think ultimately good because just the more that people are thinking about anything, the more exciting it becomes, more interesting, the more possibilities, opportunities, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But I do think perception has changed a lot because when I started, it seemed like this really, um, and I wasn't alone, but I think it wasn't so connected and we weren't all so aware of each other, but um, it seemed like this really unusual choice to be using embroidery and stitching and artwork. And now it doesn't seem unusual at all. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so, um, yeah, it's so huge. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the sort of contemporary art galleries around here are very high-end craft. Well, right That's right what... on the line, like what you were talking about, this line right, right between, or at least art that incorporates a high level of craft. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. I think that's very common. The one issue that I have sometimes with, I mean, sometimes that stuff is so great and that could be a place where I would fit. I do think the the w- issue that I can have with the, the craftier side or the design side is that it can tend to flatten out the issues in my work, I feel like, and sort of respond to, to the gimmicky side of it. Like, oh, haha, it looks like blood splatters, but it's embroidered and that's really funny and clever. And it kind of works 
that works in a design context, but it it sometimes can feel dismissive of the not just the bigger issues, but the the more complex formal qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting, and it's I think it's like doing anything. Like it's not like you fit in the whole world, but you fit very specifically in little nooks with different like-minded people. You know. Sure. Oh, could you talk about finding a title for your works? Uh, how much weight do you put on a title? Yeah, that's really interesting, and that's something that changes a lot. Often, I my titles are a little bit of a game for myself, where I'll I'll give a piece a title that's suggestive of a really complex and specific narrative, when that you know, it really has nothing to do with the piece. And part of why I do that is um, because I've often had the response with people responding to work that's basically abstract or not even abstract, I should say non-narrative and kind of seeing things in it. So often with my embroidered pieces, people will say, oh, it's a map or it's this or I see that. And so it's kind of, I've, I've named a lot of them with these kind of environmental titles just for fun. And it's funny to see then the, how that shifts the perception of it. Like, oh, okay, it's polar ice caps melting or something. Mm-hmm. And part of it is just like you have to name things, something, something, name things, something. <laughs> and so, you know, I'll, if I'm listening to a book on tape or something when I'm making a piece, there are occasionally little bits from or a phrase from the book I've listened to will be the title of the piece. But that's more a reference for myself so that I can really remember what piece I'm talking about when I see the name. So sometimes they matter to me and sometimes they don't and it really changes. What's Asheville like? Why did Asheville is yeah. <laughs> Sorry, were you going to ask something? What were you why did you decide to move there? Well, I just, you know, I decided really based on whim. Um I had lived I grew up in New York in the city and had lived there pretty much my whole life and was kind of curious to try something different and see if I could, I mean, people kind of laughed at me moving away. Like I was incapable of surviving without the like energy of the city. And I was just curious if that was true and what it would feel like to live in a really mellow place. And part of it was economic that I um, was in a kind of situation where it seemed like I could live without having a day job and just focus on artwork if I left New York, Mm -hmm. but that wouldn't have been possible if I'd stayed. So I wanted to give myself that opportunity. And it's funny. I mean, it's very different, of course, from New York. It has a lot of great qualities and there's things I really miss. And I mean, it's lacking diversity for one thing. And um, it's definitely small. And so it doesn't really have the stimulation. But the really great side is that it's so much easier to focus and you know, I'm not constantly feeling like I should be doing all these other things besides my work. And um, and it's beautiful and it's friendly and, you know, it has an art scene. It's not like an ordinary small town. It definitely has something going on. It's not necessarily the sort of art scene that I'm used to or that I fit in, but it, you know, people are trying. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I kind of like it. I don't know. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm always sort of, there's things I miss and things I, no, I would miss if I left. So we'll see what happens. How long have you been there? Four years. Do you think you're going to stay? I don't know. Yeah. I, I, you know, I remain open to the possibility of staying or not staying. 
We'll see what happens. (laughs) I'm not like committed to staying, but I don't, um, I'm not like desperately trying to leave either. So we'll see what happens. Do you feel like you need to go back to New York to keep current in the art world or to sell your work? Yes. I, I mean, I, you know, you can keep current in the artwork, art world to a pretty high degree just with the internet, of course. But, um, yeah, I do feel like I have to go back and see major shows that seem really interesting. I have a gallery in New York, so I certainly have to go back to, you know, do stuff with them. And, you know, when I do go back, I feel like, you know, there's people I need to meet up with, not just socially, but yeah, in terms of art world type stuff. So I do feel like I need to go back. On the other hand, you know, artists have galleries and, and um, you know, connections and kind of lives in major cities that they don't live in all the time. So, yeah, I mean, you always need to check in and you don't necessarily need to spend a lot of time in those places. But, you know, New York has so much going on that I, I feel like I do need to go there to just get kind of juiced up sometimes and inspired and also for a reference for me because you know in Asheville I do kind of get the response to my work of like I said like it's so edgy and -hmm. so extreme and I don't believe that that's true Mm -hmm. and um it's good for me to sort of shift my my reference by going back to New York and being reminded like oh of course it's not true (laughs) you know it's absurd (laughs) and um and also, you know, the other side, I get a lot of compliments in Asheville where people are like, wow, this is so original and so amazing. And I've never seen anything like this. And it's so incredible. And while I really appreciate, I've never experienced that thing of being kind of a big fish in a small pond, which is very comforting for, you know, a lifelong New Yorker where you're nothing all the time. <laughs> um, I do at the same time, I know that's that response I mean, much as I'm proud of my work and I appreciate it, that response to some degree is just a lack of sophistication that there's, I mean, there's so much mind blowing, incredible artwork out there. As, as we all know, it's just that they're, they don't have access to it here. So in, in some ways it's just to like remind myself of that. I need to, to get out of here and just see stuff that's so ambitious and so incredible that puts my work to shame and remind me to be ambitious and to really, um, try the ideas I have that, you know, I haven't gotten to yet. What about your book? So the, you wrote a book, The Star- Starving Artist's Way. It's a craft yeah. book focused on spending the least amount of money, but making the best stuff. But I think my favorite part is that you mention artist inspiration for each project and include a profile of that artist or ar- artist movement. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways this is an unseen value of art. And if that connection was made more visible, do you think people would understand the role of the artist in our society more thoroughly? Mm, that's an interesting question. Yeah. I mean, I think when I when I was writing the book, that was important to me. I, I wasn't necessarily part of the craft movement when I was doing that. And to me, I mean, my point of view was really like all of these ideas that you um, that are distilled in in magazines or craft books have their origin in somebody's brilliance, maybe not one person, but, um, you know, they start maybe as really complicated ideas that then get, um, boiled down to something you could just do yourself easily. And yeah, I really wanted to, 
I mean, I wanted the book not so much to be a how-to craft book, but to be an inspiration book. So like, yeah, this is one thing you could do, but look at how it relates to these incredible ideas and incredible works of art. And who knows what you could do, um, you know, if you think about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I guess anything that reminds people of the amazing artworks that are out there and amazing artists and amazing ideas is going to add to um, our ability to see, you know, see the importance of artists and, and how they contribute to our world. That's kind of a, yeah, it's a tough question to, to really get around. But yeah, the more the better, I guess I would say, yeah. in terms of yeah. seeing those connections. And and I think, you know, a lot of art is so, you know, especially when it's really conceptual, it can be really hard for people who aren't experienced with art or educated in art to to understand. And so pulling out you know, some of those little bits, some of those easy to get ideas are just really funny or fun or exciting ideas can be great for people because then you, you think, wow, I can appreciate this. And um, it's not like you have to go to art school to get it, you know. Right. Have you seen that um, singular commercial with the, the fabric going over the buildings and over the um, arch in St. Louis? St. Louis. No, that doesn't sound familiar, no. Uh, it, and then, so they ha were running this commercial, and it's like bright orange fabric. They're covering buildings. They're wrapping buildings. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so they were running it for a little while, and then all of a sudden, at the end, now there's a little disclaimer that say, Jean-Claude and Christo don't have anything to do with singing. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, at least it's made apparent now that they're totally co-opted yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. Well, that is a great example, of course, of how, like, although, I mean, would that commercial have any meaning if you didn't know about Christo? I mean, well, I don't know what you see if you don't have that reference. Well, the meaning they put in the commercial is, you know, we cover everywhere. <laughs> so. Yeah. I see. I see. Right. They're so it could be just the most. It's funny. We were just talking about that this morning because there's this really ugly. It's like the one. I am pay office building that's like completely horrible and forgotten is actually in downtown Asheville and it's this huge eyesore and we were sort of joking around I mean actually um, Steve my partner was saying did I make this up or did we hear someone talking about that Krista was going to wrap that building and I was saying like it does sound familiar but I think that might have been a joke we made and now we think is a story you know? <laughs> or it's the kind of thing people would say in Asheville because there's you know like many small places there's kind of self-importance about like yeah Krista was going to come and wrap our downtown but mm -hmm. we were just laughing about how it'd be really great to actually do it and say you know just you're just referencing those projects but really you're just covering up a really horrible building <laughs> <laughs> um, we've started ending the interviews with this question what is the value of art? Okay. Well, I think, I mean, I think the word value is really interesting. And in fact, that's a word I think we've probably said back and forth a few times already in this interview. I think what's valuable about art is the fact that its value is so hard to categorize. And everything in our world now is thought of in economic terms and commodifiable and quantifiable and even... I feel like our own value as as people is we we you know or our own our right to personhood it's like if we're making money we feel good about ourselves or at least if we're being productive we feel good and you know you can feel like a total useless human if you're not making anything or doing anything and 
I feel like even though art is bought and sold or at least funded and is, is part and parcel of economics, there's some way that it also offers something that's really separate from value. And, it, you know, either it's an experience or an idea and it's it, and maybe it's the doing of art or the taking in of art, but it 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 isn't a one to one with what it costs or um, what people are willing to pay for it, and it kind of gives you the sense of there being something else that that can't have a value stamped on it. And I think other things have fulfilled that role in other points in history. Maybe religion at some point or nature maybe does it still, but I think for right now and where we are, art is one of the few things that that reminds us of that. Yeah, that actually makes me think of a conversation we were having about that that show, Work of Art. Did you watch that? Yes. Oh, of course. <laughs> it, it actually, you know, when we heard about the idea, you know, it sort of filled us with dread. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, we you know, like watched it like addicts and was and was really <laughs> into it. But the thing at the end of it, it was like they hadn't killed art somehow. <laughs> you know, somehow, like, art maintained its dignity in some way within this sort of horrible context, I thought. Yeah, yeah, um, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. That's well put. I mean, I wonder a little bit if every, does everybody have that response or, you know, because I noticed, like, they, they definitely set up the cast of characters pretty carefully because there's the one guy who, you know, has no training. They made so much of that, although there's so many amazing, sophisticated, untrained artists. You know, I mean, I didn't go to art school myself, but you know, they made, he was, he was positioned there obviously to be the guy who was like, oh, artists are so stupid and they're with their highfalutin ideas. And, um, you know, to me, I was like, when are you going to get rid of that awful guy? But I, <laughs> I know he was there to be a voice for so many people who don't understand art and want to hear someone say, this is completely ridiculous. And I wonder how that kind of person responded ultimately to the show. Like, did they, feel like yeah this proves that art is all a big joke and and absurd and and are we reaffirmed in our feeling like no there's something there's something still there that they can't get at hmm. because of our our point of view i don't know you know and i tend to think that you're right that there's clear whether people like it or not there's something going on that the show is kind of approaching from several sides and trying to get at that just yeah kind of isn't isn't pinned down yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting because, you know, Abdi, who, spoiler, if anyone has <laughs> Everyone knows. Um, you know, Abdi, I think, was the widespread favorite, you know, over, you know, I've been sort of watching all these different people who have been writing about it and, like, the Twitter feed with the hashtag work of art. <laughs> um, and I think he was the widespread favorite over across across a lot of different populations. Um, so in that way, I think it's, it's great that he won, be, you know, even, like, no matter what, because I think it got people... The show itself got people talking about art and talking about their work and... and and I feel like it was, even though it does fall into the reality show drama of who likes who, and it still was about the work and the process of making it. Yeah, and yeah, to did, a surprisingly yeah. high degree, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Although, and like all of those shows, the the 
biggest value, it seems like, is placed on this kind of adaptability to instructions. Sure. Because, sure. you know, so so early on, like the older woman and the um, and the people who are more had had kind of gotten further in their art careers and had a pretty established point of view were knocked out because they were kind of doing what they wanted to do and they weren't adapting. And Abdi is kind of was not unique, but really you know, called out repeatedly on the show for being the one who would kind of change it up based on what they asked of him. Mm-hmm. Right. And so he was the most malleable in that sense. And, and I think that's, you know, I didn't think about it so much with like cooking shows and Project Runway and stuff like that, because I don't know about those things and I'm not seeing it as clearly, but with him, it seemed so obvious that, you know, what they were really rewarding was, was that ability to say like okay this is what you're asking of me let me meet your expectations you know right but then at the same time they're always criticizing how they want to see the real abdi (laughs) yes yeah well they yeah eventually they were i mean that was such a rewarding moment i feel like when they finally because i was feeling that way all along and then i think jerry salt said like the first said the first smart thing he ever said on the show which was like (laughs) i'm suspicious of your you know artistic integrity or however he put it i was like oh good we're gonna talk about that a little bit you know Um, yeah, so that, but that was great that that came up and I agree. It definitely raises a lot of interesting questions about art or what art even is or yeah, it's good. It's fun. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much for working with us and talking with us today. Sure. Thank you.